So if you're going to go back to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start there. We will be in Colossians chapter 4. That's where we're going to go to the fruit, but I want to lay a foundation. Matthew chapter 4, so if your Bible's like mine, it probably has a title over verse 18 before you get there. There's a break. And it usually says the calling of the first disciples or the first calling of the disciples, something like that. Well, if we didn't have the Gospel of John, all we had was the synoptic Gospels, we would be convinced this is when they were first called. But if you actually go back, and, and if you look at a harmony of the Gospels, however you want to do that, the reality is that the first calling of the disciples is recorded in the Gospel of John. They've actually spent some time with Jesus before we get to Matthew chapter 4. So in the Gospel of John, we see it this way. The next day, John was standing, of course, John the Baptist, with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him and say, say this, and they followed Jesus. We're just going to get right from the beginning that following is a big deal as far as being a disciple. You follow Christ. And he turned and saw them following and said, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two that heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And note what Andrew does, because this, I mean, this is a lesson, all right? Just keep in mind, what do followers of Christ do? They make other followers of Christ, like right from the start. Okay, Andrew finds his own brother Simon, says to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. Notice who finds Philip. Jesus does. What does he say? Follow me. So Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. He found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him, of whom Moses and the law... Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so we see from the very beginning there, these are disciples of John the Baptist. They're with John. John points to Christ and says, here is the, here's the Lamb of God. They begin to follow Jesus. Uh, Andrew follows. He gets Peter. Uh, Jesus calls Philip. We see Nathaniel following. So you see this, this entourage beginning to build. We know that they actually go to Canaan of Galilee from there. So from Canaan to Galilee, they see the first miracle, and note, I like this text, and we'll tie into this a little bit as we go along. There's a manifestation of the glory of God in what's happening. Their eyes are being opened. They're beholding more of who Christ is, and anytime that happens, there's transformation. So they believe. They, they believe this is the Messiah. They, they've already stated they believe it. Their faith is furthered, you could say. They're being further sanctified. They travel. They go from here, and they actually make their way uh, from Canaan of Galilee they make their way into Jerusalem. Um, and so in Jerusalem, they're going to come to the Passover there in John chapter 1. They witness Jesus cleanse the temple. Uh, they hear the unbelief, basically the people, especially the Jewish religious leaders. It's this, at this time that Nicodemus will come by night. They depart from Jerusalem and they make their way out of Galilee or going to Galilee. They pass through Samaria. And it was there that the Lord spoke to the woman at the well. We've looked at that, right? So he spoke to the woman at the well. And in this whole encounter, I think it's just a lesson, a little side lesson maybe. But the point is, from the very beginning, Jesus wanted to know, his disciples to know what the mission was about. And it was bigger than Israel. It was going to involve gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
And he was going to begin that at the start. He came to do his father's will. He came to see people come in saving faith. And so this gospel is bigger than Israel. And so he begins that in Samaria. So they come out of Samaria and he goes on into into, uh, this public ministry. begins uh, having come out of Samaria, sorry. Uh, And so that first harvest of soul begins. They come then to Nazareth where he is rejected in his own hometown. From Nazareth, they make their way back to Capernaum. And that's actually where we orient ourselves in Matthew chapter 4. They've actually traveled with Christ. They've been through Samaria. They've been understanding what the nature of the mission is. And now they come back, and guess what they do? They go fishing. So in Matthew chapter 4, we find our text. And while he is walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Not the first time he's seen them. Not the first time they've been called. Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets in the sea, and they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately left their boats and followed him. In that text, follow me, is literally, says, come, come after me. So they've already begun following. They've already professed to believe. Now they're back in their nets. Exactly why, we don't know. I mean, they've seen the rejection. The religious leaders aren't big on Jesus. His hometown's not big on Jesus. They're back to Capernaum. Perhaps they thought that the mission, maybe it's over. Maybe we're wrong. Or maybe they just like fishing better than following. This is hard. Following Jesus is hard because we keep getting rejected and people don't like us and the fish don't talk back. All right, so we can go catch fish. So they, 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 whatever, they're back fishing. Jesus comes right back down and calls them to leave their nets, and they do. And he says, come after, and the language is to come. And now it's not just not follow behind, it's actually follow my manner of life. I'm going to teach you how to live. And in fact, he makes a there. He uses a future verb that Jesus is going to do something. If you will really come and follow after me, learn to live from me, because that's the invitation. Come follow me. And it's really, it's, you could even say it's a command. Come follow, but learn to live. And as you learn to live, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you fishers of fish, and you'll become fishermen of men. That's what I'm going to do. And I'd argue with you that that's true for every child of God. That when you begin to follow Christ, he's making you. And it's a promise. He will make you into a fisherman of fish. You might not like fish. They're stinky. They're dirty. You know, you don't. I used to live in Florida. We used to catch fish. My wife just made, she, she liked the fact that I would flay them, clean them all before I brought her home. I brought home the filet. She could cook it. That was her idea of fishing. So, but you may not like fish, but here's what God's saying. I am going to transform your life, and you will begin to engage in fishing for men. That's what I'm about. And so he calls them. I'd like to tell you that, you know, the disciples never struggled again. But then again, I'd like to tell you I never struggle again. I'd like to tell you that being a disciple maker is easy, and you just start it, and you just do it. But the reality is, is the devil offers you a lot of distractions. Lots of other things to spend your life on. Lots of other things to do and be religious about even. 
You can be very religious, very involved in church, very active in a lot of things and not be a disciple maker. The disciples struggle. They would follow Jesus, left their nets again. They go to the synagogue there in Capernaum. He heals the man possessed by a demon. Come back to Peter's house and he heals his mother-in-law. People gather and they just keep gathering. He keeps healing and the crowds keep gathering and everybody wants him to stay and he says, no, we're leaving and they go on a preaching tour through Galilee. They come back from the preaching tour in Galilee and they come back again to Capernaum and guess what the disciples do? They go fishing again. Only this time they spend an entire night fishing, catching nothing. Now, that just didn't happen in these men's lives. They were skilled fishermen. They knew when to fish, where to fish. One of the things I learned when I was in Florida, because I, I learned from some really skilled fishermen that had been fishing a long time, I learned very quickly, I don't like fishing. I like catching. And if you knew the right places and times and tides and where the fish like to gather, I love taking people out in the ocean because you can always catch something. And usually, depending on the time of the year, I could get you on fish pretty much I knew where to go, where to go, where to take people, get them catching fish. That was my idea of fishing. It's not everybody. Some of you just like to sit there with a line in the water and do other things, and that's your idea of relaxing. My kids kind of had that idea. They told me later that, Dad, fishing with you is too much work. And I'm like, well, that's because I don't like fishing. I like catching. I don't like sitting. I like doing. So going active. But anyway, so here's the, these men spent the night. They catch nothing. They're cleaning their nets, and Jesus is back. You know, the crowds were there. They tried to hold him in Capernaum, and he leaves, goes through Galilee, comes back. Well, the crowds regather. It's one of those situations where all the people were excited Jesus was there, but not so much his disciples. They spent the night skunked, and what did Jesus do? Well, he brought, him, brought, him, brought all the people down to the water. And he said, oh, Peter, I'm going to use your boat. Can just imagine Peter's, you know, I mean, he's tired. I'm going to been up all night, clean these nets. I'm going home to sleep. No, no, put out the boat. I'm going to teach from your boat. So he teaches from the boat, but then after that's done, the shocking thing happens. Jesus says, let's go fishing. And Peter objects. I mean, he does it, but he does it with very this objection, like, you know, I'm, you know like, what does this carpenter know about fishing anyway? I mean, it's really his attitude. It's like, what? Go put out the net. Why? But he, kind of, he yields and he says, well, you're, you're the master. He doesn't even call him Lord. He just says, you're master. I guess we'll do it. So of course, they go out and they put out the nets. And what I want you to see is what actually changed in their life. They throw out the net and they start pulling it up. And in fact, the fish, the catch is so great. They call John and James over and they're filling up their boats. Their boats are actually starting to sink. And Peter looks up from the catch and it says, and he saw it. He saw the catch, but I think what we're pointing at is he saw something much better, much greater. This moment, his eyes are open, and note what he does. He falls down on his knees. Catch a vision of the glory of God, and you fall, bow the knee. And he cries out, as they're all astonished, but note he cries out, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I don't deserve to be called your follower. They're all astonished, and... James and John are there, and Jesus said, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And they brought their boats to land, and note what it says, they left 
everything and followed him. They got it. Their eyes were finally open to their purpose, to the mission, and what they've been called to do. And Jesus flips the promise and expands it, really. Because remember, he said, follow me, and I'm going to do this in your life. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Now he says, you're going to start catching them. That ought to be encouraging, folks. Jesus isn't just sent you out there with the gospel for the possibility that people will get saved. There are people who are going to respond to the gospel message, your testimony of salvation, and actually respond in saving faith. They're out there. Do you still believe that? Folks, if we don't believe that, we don't deserve to be a church. We're here to take the gospel to the world that is lost in darkness. We are followers of Jesus Christ. He's making us fishers of men with a promise that you get to catch some. Just don't gut and clean them, okay? We actually get to catch men who will likewise become followers of Christ. They saw something, and I think Paul puts it this way that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Folks, we come to church with this hope in mind. We ought to. I mean, we came to meet with God today, did we not? We come with a promise that where we're gathered, he plans to meet. We pray, or we should be praying, Lord, there's something for me to learn today from your word. We're coming into your presence to hear from you. And when we hear from you, we actually want to leave here being a little bit more like our Savior. We want to behold more of his glory, because when we behold his glory, my life is being changed. I'm becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so we come every week, we gather because he tells us to gather, but we gather not just out of habit, not just out of that pattern of, well, the church is supposed to gather, I should be there. I come because God promised to be here today. He promised to show up. Not just show up to speak through his word and to change our lives if our eyes will be open to see him. And so when we behold more of his glory and actually where we're going in this is, folks, one of the things to encourage your heart is you see the glory of God in the transformation of lives all around you. That's exactly where Paul's going to go in the end of the book of Colossians. He's going to point to people's lives who through discipleship were changed. And he's pointing to their life. And, and I, I mean, one of the privileges that I get, we get in working with, with the seminary students and I hear their stories, one of the things I make them do is give me their testimony and they, they actually put it in video and so I watch video of all their testimonies. I hear their stories. I hear their stories of grace and what God has done in their salvation and their rescue and what they're doing to share that gospel with others and I even made them in this year's assignment. They had to share it with somebody who they did not believe knew Christ. And I think that was the hardest aspect of it. Isn't that sad though? I mean, it's sad that we've actually let our culture push us so hard to say, you guys can all meet together and do church, just don't take that message outside of it. And we've got their point. The silence culture has pressed us hard. They're saying, you, you, you can gather. I mean, you can gather. In fact, I really appreciate Pastor dealing with that whole Jesus gets us movement, which is to get, to get this some kind of unconditional love with no savior, no need of a savior. We just love each other, and the world's going to accept that message. 
They'll be glad to accept that message, and they're just going to tell you that we'll accept you as long as you accept our definition of love. And you now have to love us unconditionally based on our definition of love, which isn't love at all. And we've been called to go into a world that's growingly hostile with the gospel as followers of Christ with a promise and I, again, in the middle of the hostility and the darkness, it's easy to kind of get pulled back and like, well, there's just people don't want to hear it. No dead sinner wants to hear the gospel, okay? They just don't. They don't want to. They don't think they need it. But here's the thing. God's going to raise dead people to life, right? And you get to be a part of something miraculous, beholding the glory of God when God brings dead people, spiritually dead people to life. And we get to participate in that. And then we get to join together in discipling groups where we help each other grow and we're seeing the grace of God at work in a life. That's amazing. You heard testimony today. Nothing more spiritually fulfilling I've ever done. And you're thinking, yeah, pastor paid them to say that testimony. They got up here to give me, they're trying to rope me into something in this new program and I just don't believe it because I've heard all the programs that have come along and I've tried this program and that program and it hasn't changed my life yet. God says you need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that follower, this is what I would just as a working definition, means an eager learner. Fundamentally, if you're not an eager learner, you should put a question mark over the word disciple. An eager learner, devoted follower, not casual. One who loves God's word and longs to live God's way. And if that means if we're going to live God's way, we actually engage in a disciple-making life. The Great Commission is to call to go make disciples. And we tended to take this command and stick it out there. And we do church ministry, we do Sunday school, we do all this discipleship stuff. But we don't do the make side. Because the make side's the really, really hard side. We don't really do the other side very well either, because we just call it gathering and we hear some truth. But we actually don't ever hold each other accountable to living that truth, which means we actually aren't doing what the text says. Because please note what the text says. You teach them to... Observe, to actually do it. That's the point in the discipleship group. You actually get to encourage each other. I know accountability is, you know, we don't like it. Because after all, if I'm accountable to something, somebody's going to actually ask me that hard question. And then I'm going to have to give an account to that. And folks, accountability is your friend. God actually gave us one another in the body of Christ where we can have people who actually love us that will hold us accountable. I need it. You need it. It's one of the beauties of being in a discipling relationship with people that know you because now you move beyond the surface prayer request and you actually can start moving into the hard issues that you're struggling with, whether it's work or a family situation. And you actually can share transparently with one another. And then you can pray earnestly for one another. It's the beauty of a discipling relationship. And so disciple-making Again, just a working definition is intentionally entering someone's life to share Christ and to teach them to keep his commands. So as we now shift, and so there's the layout. This is who you've been called to be. It is what God is doing in the life of his children. If you are a follower of Christ, you know Christ, then you are his disciple. As you grow in following him, he is making you into a fisher of men. That's what he's doing. He won't quit. If we don't walk in that path, we say, well, I'm not becoming a fisher of men, then I just could say Hebrews chapter 
12 is going to come into play. There's going to be some chastening and shaping because Jesus is going to make you a fisherman. That's what he's about. With a promise to catch. And so he's all about this, are we? Then we come into the fruit, and this is where we see, and I'm doing something unusual, going to the end of the book of Colossians. And in fact, we read Philemon today, and you're going to hear a lot of the same names, because Onesimus was from Colossae. He's being sent back there by Paul, a runaway slave. And we're going to see these men, and we're going to see Paul commending them. They're all people who traveled with Paul. They're all the fruit of a disciple-making life. Paul got it, okay? He was one born out of time, right? A disciple born out of time. He spent time, Barnabas invested in him. Jesus separately invested in Paul. Paul, the apostle, then got the whole point of what it meant to make disciples, and he took men on the journey with him. He was always discipling. And at the end of the book of Colossians, we're going to find people that Paul discipled being commended and described. And so what we're looking at is the fruit of a disciple-making life that when you invest in the lives of others, God transforms lives. Folks, there's nothing greater. I mean, didn't John tell us that there's nothing better than to see your children? And he wasn't talking biological. He was talking spiritual children walking in truth. I mean, every parent raised children delights to see their children mature and love Christ and begin serving and expanding. And it's a delight to their heart to see their biological children growing and maturing and reflecting. Paul, I mean, John is just saying, listen, there's the great, you, you've been made for this. You've been made to be a disciple follower of Jesus Christ who makes other followers of Jesus Christ that replication is actually, it's, it's what healthy things do. They reproduce. Healthy followers of Christ reproduce healthy followers of Christ. That's just who they are. It's not a program. It's just who they are. And so as he commends, we see these descriptions of these people, and you see that they become faithful ministers, fellow servants, slaves, literally slaves, delighting to serve and teaching others what they themselves have been taught that's the very nature of what God did in their life. And so depending on how you want to translate the first one, if you do it in Greek, it's tukikos. So most of us, I think, probably say tikios, something like that. But I don't know how you pronounce it. The tukios is how it would be kind of pronounced in Greek. But so he will tell you all about my activities. Note the description of both him and Nesimus. Beloved brothers, faithful minister, fellow servant, faithful slave in the Lord. One of Paul's favorite titles for himself, by the way. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that, he may, that, that you may know how we are and he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful, beloved brother, who is one of you, and they will tell you everything that has taken place. And Tukikos, we meet first in Acts chapter 20. He's from the province of Asia. He's actually chosen to uh, travel with Paul to take uh, the, the, mission, the offering uh, to, to the poor there in Jerusalem, the offering for the saints. So he travels with Paul on that trip. He's entrusted by Paul with a letter, a letter to the church of Ephesians. And so he traveled from probably 
he, he brought the letter to the church at Ephesus. Colossae is another 120 miles, so it looks like he's also got the letter of Colossae. So he's sent with the letter to the church of Ephesus. He makes his way to Colossae. Uh, later, we're going to see that he's sent to Crete to allow Titus to join Paul. Um, in final Paul in 2 Timothy, we find that Timothy is requested to come to Paul, who we believe is then in a Roman prison, and he tells him that uh, Tychius has been sent back to Ephesus. So what do we know about him? Well, he must like to travel. <laughs> he's going, and he's being sent here, sent here, carry these, carry this, go here. Now, what we actually know about him is he travels with the apostle Paul, and he's being discipled by Paul and then he is entrusted with ministry by Paul. He now can go in Paul's stead, be sent to a church to minister the word of God there. He can come and actually note what he says about him, that he will be able to encourage your hearts, that he's going to be able to minister God's word in such a way, and I love the, the Greek word for encouragement there, parakaleo, which again just is to call alongside, literally is what it means. It's used in some context of the idea to come alongside and correct somebody, to call them back to a path of obedience, so it can be used of an exhortation, or it can be used of an encouragement to come alongside somebody doing the right thing. Some of you are dorm soups and dorm mentors. Some of you have responsibilities. It's a lot more fun coming alongside of the ones doing the right thing and say, keep going. The harder conversations come along the people who aren't doing the right thing and saying, stop it. Get back on the path of obedience. Both are needed. And in discipling relationships, we actually get to do both. The reality is, is people that are struggling with sin are struggling with sin, and they, 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 they sit right next to you on Sunday. And the pastoral experience that we've all had is people make train wrecks out of their life most of the time before they ever walk in your door and ask for help. By the time that marriage comes into pastoral counseling, that wreck is so deep. That when they leave, you simply put your head down and weep and say, Lord, I have no idea how this marriage is going to make it. You're going to have to do a miracle because they have packed so much baggage. And the reality is, is God hasn't called us to live that way. He's actually called us to live in relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ so that when that marriage begins to struggle, you already have relationship with somebody that, is, that can help you and speak into that and begin helping you when it's just having struggle back here. I mean, in the first year of marriage, you think you got new struggles, okay? Life gets more complicated. Sin gets more deceptive. The destructions get higher. You start bad patterns early in your marriage, they will bear fruit later. It's a whole lot better for us to have discipling relationships where we're coming alongside somebody who's got a few more years of experience. And, you know, I, I, it's my favorite T-shirt. Nobody's useless, at least you can be a bad example, okay? I mean, that person that's discipling you isn't going to ever be perfect. They've made a lot of mistakes along in their journey, too, just like the apostles one of the reasons why I wanted to show them keep struggling going back fishing is they didn't get it perfect. It's not like from the moment they got called, they figured it all out, it's all settled, boom, I'm off in this disciple-making life, and I never struggle again. That's not what it looked like. They struggled. They had to be called back. They had to be rebuked. Jesus had to carry them along and keep teaching them and keep opening up his glory so they would see a little more of it, a little more of it. Their lives were transformed, and those men gave their lives for the gospel. They got it. 
And God's called us to engage in these kind of relationships that we can do. And I can't think of a better title. Why do you need to be in a discipleship group? Because you need people to encourage your heart. And sometimes that may look like calling you back to a path of obedience. And sometimes it's just going to be keep going. You're doing the right thing. Keep going. And I had a student come talk to me this, this week, and basically that's really what it was. Just wanted some assurance in how handling the situation, and I could just come alongside and talk through the word and the situation. But at the end of the day, I was just simply saying, you're doing the right thing. You're pleasing Christ in what you did. Keep going. Keep trusting Christ. Keep taking the next right step. And we need those relationships. We need that encouragement. In fact, Paul even described his ministry. If you wanted to go back to chapter 2 of Colossae, he tells them when he's writing there in chapter 2, he said you know, that he wanted them to know in the church of Laodicea how much. He said, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those in Laodicea and for all have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged. That's what Paul describes his teaching ministry. It's what Paul's saying is the result of Tukikos' ministry. You see, Onesimus, which this is rather shocking, really, for its culture, Onesimus was a slave. You notice how Paul calls him here. He's a faithful brother, a faithful, beloved brother. I mean, that just didn't happen in that culture. To be a slave meant your personal property. He's run away. He's now being sent back to the church, and Paul wants the church to know that Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother. And Onesimus is coming back to the church from which he ran, from the people he defied. And he's coming back to be a servant as a faithful and beloved brother of Christ. We see as he continues in verse 10 and 11, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instruction, if he comes, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And so you see in it here, they, they're men that are not afraid to suffer for the cause of the gospel. I mean, what, so Aristarchus, we can go back again, you find him in Acts chapter 19, traveling with Paul. Uh, he joins... Uh, uh, Tukikos, he joins him with the relief funds, Acts chapter 20. He accompanies Paul on his uh, journey to Rome in Acts chapter 27. And what does Paul have to say about him? Well, simply this, my fellow prisoner. It's a pretty telling statement, isn't it? He didn't run from the fight. He didn't run from the suffering. When Paul's being arrested for the gospel, he sticks. In fact, you saw at the end of reading of, of Philemon, Epaphras is actually called my fellow prisoner. These are men who went to jail with the apostle. They stood alongside. They, they understood that the standing for the gospel in the midst of a culture that was hostile to the gospel might cost you something. And I just heard this week, Canada's considering a new law to put on the books. And if they pass this law, they're going to raise the level of hate speech, to, so in discrimination, anything that would be in the whole gender issue, if you speak into it and say it's not true, you can be uh, convicted of a hate speech, put in jail for an indefinite period of time, and fined $20,000. Folks, the devil hates Christianity. 
He hates it. He wants to silence it. Our culture wants to say to you, you can have your Christianity as long as you keep it to yourself. That's not true. They actually don't believe that. They want to destroy it. And they will take every step, but the first step is simply to convince you to be silent and keep it to yourself. Why? Because revival happens one sinner at a time. And it happens when the church of Jesus Christ quits being afraid and actually lives out her purpose to be disciple makers who actually make disciples and catch men with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we won't do it as long as we're afraid of the opposition. As long as we're afraid of the cost, we count the cost. I mean, uh, we've been sold a bill of goods for a long time. Comfort, convenience, safety. We want to be comfortable. We want to have convenience. That's why we all are fast food junkies. We want to go to the market. We expect it to be fully stocked. We want everything to be at our fingertips. We want life to be comfortable. We do not like discomfort. In fact, we would like padded chairs, not these hard chairs. Okay, no I mean, we go down the whole list. I mean, we want comfort, but we also want safety. And we just saw how well the whole world can be manipulated by fear and told to trust the pseudoscience and believe something that wasn't true so you can be safe. Folks, there is no safety in a fallen world. And there's only one who delivers from death, and that's the one who defeated it, Jesus Christ. And if the church of Jesus Christ keeps her message to herself, you simply are watching people die and go to eternal condemnation while believing they can be safe in this world through some scientific delivery. There is no scientific delivery coming. There is no economic delivery coming. There's a Savior who came and died and called us to go take that message of hope to a world who is lost and dying. That's where hope is found. That's where we've called. But it does look like not being surprised when the world hates you. It does look like actually it's believing what Paul said. You know, it's, it's not usually the invitation. You know, people ask you to come to certain things, come to my concert, come to this, come to that event. I've yet to get that card. I haven't seen it in the store. Maybe you should start the Hallmark card. Come share in my suffering. We don't see that card. But isn't that what Paul does? He says, come, don't be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel. By what? The power of God. That should encourage you. It's not just put the sign on your back and run around and say, beat me up. It's like take the gospel and realize the world's going to hate it, and you may pay some prices for it, but don't worry about it. God's got it. I mean, it's that no, never, never, never forsake you thing that we talked about last week. That he's never, ever going to leave you, never, ever going to forsake you. You can, by the power of God, face whatever opposition comes your way as you minister the gospel in the lives. Because you start living for your purpose. Your purpose was never to live for you. Never to accumulate stuff. Your purpose is actually bring glory to Jesus Christ. And we do that by being people who, who are disciples, followers, who make more followers. That's actually how we do it. So we share in suffering. We face the persecution, the opposition. We don't wince at that reality. We don't bow down to these issues. He sees he mentions Mark in this text as well. And Mark, we know, he's the cousin of Barnabas. He's where Peter came to John Mark's house right after being released from prison. 
He joins Paul in the first missionary journey, he and Barnabas, and he abandons it. And Barnabas and Paul come to odds over where the mark could travel. Barnabas fulfills his word, I mean, fulfills the description. He's a son of encouragement. He's a discipler who goes, walks alongside of Mark and disciples Mark, and he's restored. And we see Paul commending him, and we see a commendation we'll look at in just a moment. I think I want to jump to it right here. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Note what he says now about Mark. He's very useful. He's very useful. I don't know. I mean, this is one of the ways I pray personally. I just pray, Lord, however you have me to serve, whatever capacity it looks like, here's one thing that I want to make sure of, that I'm useful. Whatever it looks like, it doesn't matter what I'm doing in ministry. It simply matters that it matters to you. So keep me useful. Don't let me disgrace you. Don't let me disqualify myself. Don't ever let me do anything that would dishonor you. Just keep me useful. Mark was useful. He was valuable. And one of the points simply here is you think of Mark and his, his, his struggle with discipleship and his restoration and he becomes valuable in the work of the ministry. Just know this, discipleship's messy work. I mean, we've, you know, the nursery is growing here literally at Gateway. That's a good thing. Actually, the nursery needs to grow because the, the, we're, we're going to have all these new children born and the babies and they're a gift of God and it's, it's a thrill but one of the things God wants to do at Gateway is prepare a spiritual nursery. Why would God give us babies, spiritual babies, if we're not prepared to help them grow up? We build a spiritual nursery where we're prepared to actually walk alongside and do this messy work of discipling and helping people grow spiritually so they're maturing and they become replicators who actually take the gospel into this community and we engage and we hold each other accountable and we encourage each other's hearts in the work that God's given us to do to live out who we are in Christ, followers of Jesus Christ who make more followers of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Let's live it. Let's help each other. Let's engage. And know it's messy work. You know, there's going to be some blowouts along the way. Babies blow out those diapers at unexpected times. And they need change, like full change. You're dealing with new people who come to Christ out of the baggage of a culture. It's a messy life. Perhaps I'm actually describing you, and you know your following of Christ has been awful messy. You start, you make some progress, you get going, and you stumble, you fall, and you begin to believe the lie of the devil that somehow God can't use you. Don't believe that lie. The apostles stumbled and fall. They kept going back to fishing. They kept going back to what they used to do, and Christ kept coming. Nope, called you to something different. Called you to something different. I'm doing something different in your life. Keep following me. I'm going to keep changing your life. And they keep following. It's messy. But the Christian experience has lived just like it began. When I'm not doing the right thing, I'm simply called to repent and believe. Lord, please help me be a disciple that follows you closely that learns to live like you lived for the same reasons you lived? And then help me take that gospel message to others and be a catcher of men. Lord, I just want to sit on the side and kind of 
so to speak, throw the line out there and hope something bumps into it one day. I want to go where the lost people are. I want to figure out how to get into conversation with them. I want to minister the gospel in their life and watch you rescue them because there is nothing more exciting than that. I like watching fishing videos. When that rod gets over like this, the guy's like, whoa, what is down there? And he's reeling it up and he's fighting it and it comes up and he's like, look at that. And he, I, I like it. I've experienced it. I, I mean, I've seen the big, you know, the 10-foot shark on the end of my line. And you're kind of like, yeah, I did that. But folks, there is nothing more fulfilling than living for what God's actually called you to do and be. A follower of Jesus Christ who sees other people start following Christ. You know, that's a miracle. New birth's a miracle. I mean, for all those mothers, expecting mothers and those dads, I mean, you've got a glorious event coming up. And it's the closest thing to a miracle you get to see. God gives you this baby, and it's just an amazing thing that God does. Well, God does that in people who are spiritually dead. And he raises them to life. And you get to be a part of that. Kind of the question. It's messy work. It's hard work. But it's super exciting. What gets you excited? I think I mentioned this one time we were doing door-to-door. I said, I used to hate door-to-door, just being honest. I'm an introvert. Most of you will never believe that. Total introvert. Walking out a door was one of the last things I ever wanted to do. I got told I had to go knock on doors, so I knocked on doors. And I used to hate it, but then I finally realized, you know, I, I, now this is a flashback to my childhood, so I'm old, okay? I used to like getting Cracker Jacks. Why do I like Cracker Jacks? Because I like them? No, I like the prize inside. There was something in there, and I wanted to see what that prize was. Or if we went to McDonald's and got the Happy Meal, right? So you got the Happy Meal, you wanted to get the prize, whatever it was. You're just excited about the prize. So here's my, here's my, maybe it works for you, maybe it doesn't. I go knock on doors, I'm just like, this is like a Cracker Jacks box. I have no idea what's coming. It's going to be fine. Same thing on the plane. I don't, I mean, it's like, Lord, I want somebody I can actually talk to. That's really what I want. But I have no idea what's coming. And I don't sit there, I used to sit there with the introvert box on, like, I just, I hope they don't even talk to me. I hope they have their headphones on, they want to sleep, and leave me alone. And then I finally got, you know what, that's just stupid. Sorry. Okay. I'm like, why am I being so foolish? Why? Because God's got this. He put me in this seat. Lord, put somebody next to me I can talk to. And Lord, open the conversation, and I'm just going to be excited because it's like a Cracker Jack box. They're going to open up, and I have no idea what's coming out. Get excited about the opportunities to speak about Jesus. Amen? When's the last time you shared your faith with somebody? If it's been so long you don't remember, then it's time to get excited about the right things. I mean, I enjoy the game of golf. Just ask me. I'll tell you all about it. I like playing. I like learning. I like watching it. I can talk about the game of golf. Trey, I'm just going to pick on him for a moment. He likes football, and he is a statistician. I cannot believe the stats that come out of this guy's mouth. But you know what? The only way that happens is because he really likes it, so he's paid really good attention to it. So don't get in a fantasy football league with that guy. He'll blow you out, all right? Just tell him. Don't do it. And, you know, we all have interests. You have hobbies. You got preoccupied. We've got things we really get excited about. Are we excited about telling other people about Jesus 
And if we're not, isn't it time to change that? Isn't it time just to say, Lord, forgive us? We need to be excited about the right thing. This is why we're here. Let me be excited about telling people about Jesus and pray for those doors to be open. In fact, Colossians 4 is all about that. It starts that way. And that kind of brings us to the end. Fruit of a disciple-making life, they're prayer warriors. Epaphras. I mean, this ought to get you excited, folks. Epaphras, saved under Paul's ministry, goes back to his hometown. One disciple-maker goes back to his hometown, and a church is planted. One man got saved, went home, and began telling other people about Jesus. And the church of Colossae was founded. Don't ever underestimate what God can do through your life. Don't ever underestimate what God can do through the life of a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. A church was planted, and he is a prayer warrior who prays this way, that they would stand mature, fully assured of the will of God, that they would have confidence to engage in a ministry that may cost them. Epaphras had been in jail for the gospel. Fully assured of God's will, what God had called them to do and recognizing opposition is going to come, but be fully assured of God and his promises. And he worked hard. Discipleship's hard work. It's demanding work. Demanding labor of love in lives of people. Luke says this, a disciple's not above Jesus, said it, really. A disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. We grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We actually become more like him. We'll love what he loves. Jesus had a heart of compassion for the lost. I am to have a heart of compassion for the lost. Jesus has called me to go make disciples. He's given me a mission a lifetime, for however long that he gives me life and breath, I don't have to wonder what I'm here to do. I'm here to follow Christ, to be a fisher of men, and praise God every time he allows me to catch. Discipleship, intentionally entering accountable relationships, saturated by the word, empowered by the spirit, to reproduce Christ-like disciples. That's what we're talking about. That's what we are here to do. That's who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you.